You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. So uh, we are going to, I'm going to give you a little bit of context of what happened uh, uh, with this letter. This is a letter that was written to a church in a city that no longer exists, but you can actually go to a map of Turkey and find Ephesus. There's actually a, a museum of Ephesus. The city is not necessarily the same. It doesn't even have the same name. I couldn't read the name, honestly. It's not, uh, I don't speak Turkish or, or um, whatever the language is. Uh, but it was a very prominent city back in the first century in, in what is what was called Asia. And uh, this is an important letter. And there is debate whether it was officially sent or dedicated to the church in Ephesus. Some academics believe that it was a letter that was to be circulated in the area to different churches. Nevertheless, it was a letter written to the church in that area. Um, the letter dates to A.D. 60 and was written by the Apostle Paul uh, when he was in, in his imprisonment in, in Rome. And as it is the common language of most of the New Testament, or all of the New Testament, this letter was written in Greek. Um, the letter was sent to a group of uh, saints or believers that were considered some somewhat mature, uh, in fact, if you read later in the book of Revelation what the, the angel or what the Spirit says to the church in Ephesus, it actually tells them that they're doing pretty well. The, the only charge he has against them is that they lost their first love. So we could sort of think of the church of Ephesus as a mature church. Uh, it actually had some really gifted preachers that were part of this church or, or that spent some time at this church. One of them was Paul, of course. He planted the church. Uh, and you can read about how the church began in Acts chapter 18, uh, which is the end of Paul's second missionary journey. And then how Paul returned to Ephesus and spent about three years with them on his last third missionary journey. Um, he uh, appointed people that, to stay there. One of the, the pastors or the pastor that was in charge of this church was his uh, disciple, Timothy. And uh, they had some other really gifted preachers like Apollos and uh, Priscilla and Aquila who were part of, of the core team, if you would, in, in, that, in that city. Um, this is a very theologically heavy letter. Some people have actually considered the letter of uh, uh, the Ephesians or to the Ephesians as one of the most important documents of Christian of the Christian church throughout history. And some people uh, parallel Ephesians, the, the letter to the Ephesians to the book of Romans as uh, a letter that includes a lot of the basic theology that we that we have today. So we have the privilege of learning from it today. So uh, we're going to start by looking at a small section of the first chapter. So you will see that the letter has basically two sections. The first three chapters are very theologically heavy. They're all about what we believe, what we're supposed to be uh, believing. Uh, we're going to be talking about some very specific 
doctrines. And then the last three chapters are uh, kind of like what is it or how does it look like for us to live out of this doctrine. So it's a more practical section of the book. Um, and we're going to spend time today in chapter 1, which in my opinion is one of the most detailed um, outlines of how we are saved or how God saves us. Um, so we're going to go ahead and start today by reading our text, cha chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 1 through 14. And it reads like this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. So I chose this section because in the original language, this is a long one sentence. And uh, I know there's a lot to cover here, and I, um, I think I'm going to break it up in two parts and, and I, I understand there's many angles. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard this text preached several times. Um, but I want to I wanna make sure that we understand what's happening. So we're going to spend some time talking about some difficult doctrines that are sort of um, debated in Christian circles. In fact, we're going to be zooming in and, and one of the uh, probably the most debated uh, doctrine in, in, all, in all Christianity, which is predestination. And, and if you read and you paid attention, there is really no way around this doctrine. The word comes up at least three different times in this text. So before I get into all of that, I just want to make sure that we understand that what we just read is basically an outline of how God saves us. And one of the most amazing things about the, the first chapter of Ephesians is that it actually shows how the whole Trinity works in harmony to save us, to actually accomplish this plan of salvation for us. 
Um, so if you pay attention, the first, uh, the first part of it is how the Father is planning or decreeing or predestining us for salvation. And then he moves on to say how we, he did that, he accomplished that in Christ or through Christ by his blood and, and all the blessings that come with that. And the last part of this section actually ends by highlighting the fact that the Holy Spirit participates or takes place into the plan of salvation by giving us the inheritance. He is the down payment, the, in, the, the guarantee, the seal of our, our salvation. And if you're familiar with Christian theology, you will. this is what it's called as the economic trinity. This is how the trinity work to save us, how they all come in one plan and everybody plays its part in perfect harmony to accomplish salvation for us. And the, the, the saying basically goes that the father plans, the son accomplishes or executes, and the spirit applies the salvation for us. So I'm going to be talking about each step of how this uh, develops in, in our life. So the first thing we see is the Father in action. We're going to talk about the first three verses later uh, about the Apostle Paul. But the first thing I want to highlight is the first thing we see is that the Father is blessing us in Christ. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what this basically means is that the blessings that we have in God through Christ or in the Father through Christ are not just uh, blessings that are for this world. So Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians is going to take us to a whole new level. We typically think of blessings at, uh, of uh, like things that happen today right? So when we think of God bless you, we usually think of, well, may God provide for your family, or may God heal uh, the people that you love. And we think of blessings as, as earthly things. But what the, what the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians is that God has blessed us not only on this earth, which he, he has, but also in heavenly places, in other places. And he has already blessed us with every blessing. And what's going to happen is that Paul is going to describe all of those blessings that he has given us through Christ. And the first one that we see, and, and he actually goes right to say it in verse 4, is that he chose us. He chose us in him, in his son, before the foundation of the world. He will later talk about how we were adopted and redeemed and sanctified and glorified and all those things. But the first thing he says is the first blessing that the God, the Father, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has given us is that he chose us before the foundation of the world. Then, this is the, this is the first time that election or choosing or predestination comes up in this, in this text. Verse 5, then he says, uh, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself. And then he repeats this in verse 11, saying, Having been predestined according to the purpose of him, the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And if you have been a Christian for a while, you know that this is a controversial topic, to say it in a, ni in a nice way. What does it mean that God elected us? What does it mean that God predestined us? 
The words here, and, and, and I know that there are preachers who like to do study, studies about words, and they tell you the Greek and all that stuff. Um, I don't tend to do that because predestination, the word predestination in the original language actually means predestination. It actually means to be previously destined for something. And the word chosen literally means selected or elected or chosen. So that's why we have these translations. And I understand there are words that need more explanation, uh, but in this case, the meaning of both words in the original language, which is Greek, is very straightforward. Predestined means that you were predestined, that you were destined beforehand, and that you were chosen or selected or elected. And what that means is that before anything happened, before the world was created, before the foundation of the world, God chose us. God chose his people. God elected the ones that were going to be saved, the ones that were, were going to spend eternity with him. And I understand this brings a lot of questions in our minds and all of those questions are actually valid. And we will see that, in fact, the Apostle Paul himself tries or attempts to give, give us an answer later. But even though this is a controversial, debated uh, topic or, or doctrine, the doctrine of election or predestination, I want to make sure you understand that all Christians believe in predestination. And the reason why all Christians believe in predestination is because there's no way around the concept or the doctrine. You find it in different places in Scripture. The difference is how people interpret predestination. And I want to I talk a little bit about two main camps. There's more, uh, but there, in, in, in Christian doctrine, there's basically two main camps of how to interpret the word predestination or election. And the first one is uh, what is called uh, Arminianism. And that comes because of a guy, his name was Jacobus Arminius, and he developed this theory or this doctrine of uh, how to interpret predestination. The second one is Calvinism that comes from John Calvin, and th that also um, outlines how to interpret it. They are not the only ones. That's the name that we're giving to them, but they're not the only ones that believe that, or they were not the first ones who proposed those things. They are the most notable ones. So let me just try to briefly uh, explain Arminianism. And just so you'll know, I grew up in an Arminian or uh, uh, Arminian way of understanding scripture up until I was like 30 years old. And I went to a Bible college that was fully Arminian. In fact, I was taught that uh, Calvinism was a cult or was a heresy. So let me just explain to you how Arminians believe in predestination. So Arminians believe that, in fact, God chooses and predestines his people. But they do it based on, or he does it based on the fact that they, the people, chose God first. And the way they interpret this is that as God was getting ready to plan or to, to, to found the world or to begin everything, he saw ahead in the, on the tunnel of time and he saw those who would choose him. So he saw the movie and he saw the people who chose him and then he chose those people who chose him. But he chooses those people because they chose him. 
That is the basic understanding. And I know there's way more than that. I'm not, I'm not being faithful to how they fully interpret it. But in, 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 in summary, God chooses people, and there are many of you, based on the fact that they chose him first. And I don't, I don't say first as chronologically because this is happening before the foundation of the world. But as in God's uh, omniscience and, and, and God uh, knowing that they were going to choose him. So, in my perspective, the Arminian position is not really that God chooses his people, but rather than his people choose him. And that the basis of their predestination is that they are the ones choosing God. And in my opinion, that is not necessarily predestination. Armenians believe that, it, that one or a person is saved based on the fact that they have the ability to come to Jesus or to come to God out of their own will. Armenians believe that one is saved based on one's choosing of God, which then prompts God's reciprocation in choosing them. The Armenian view is called synergism, meaning that there's two wheels at work, and one depends on the other. And once both of them meet, then salvation happens. One's choosing is a condition of God's choosing. Now, opposite to that is a Calvinist view of predestination. And the Calvinist view of predestination is that God truly chooses and predestines his people based solely on his own perfect will. That God saw ahead on the tunnel of time and he chose his people based on his purpose, not based on what they did. The Calvinist position maintains the concept of predestination as destined beforehand without any exceptions or any conditions, which is what the word, the word literally means. They also believe that there's only one will at work in salvation, and that is God's will. And therefore, it is called monergism. There's only one will that is taking place and choosing and predestining people. And they believe that the choosing of people prompts a response of then choosing God back from the people that he chose. And as a result of that, these people follow him and maintain their relationship forever. This response is not a condition to be chosen, but rather a result of being chosen. I believe the second one. I am a Calvinist in these terms. I was not a Calvinist my whole, my whole life. And I believe that the Calvinist position is more congruent with God's attributes of all-knowing, all-powerful, knowing everything. I believe that it's, it's more congruent with the fact that God is not constrained by matter or space or time like us. And I know that Arminians or people who do not agree with that are Christian as well. And that is usually one of the things that most Calvinists believe is that if you don't believe in predestination the way I believe in predestination, then you are not a Christian. And I personally don't believe that. I was born again in an Armenian church 
And I believe that God chose me back then, and he predestined me to go through that journey to land where I am right now. So I want to say that Armenians, people who do not believe like us, are also our brothers and sisters. And this is not something that we're going to fight over and we're not going to divide over. I think that we have the ability to concede uh, that people might think differently from us. But I just want to tell you a few other instances in Scripture where we see this concept played out. This is not the only place that we find the idea of predestination in Scripture. And in fact, God doesn't only choose his people. He sometimes uses and predestines events as well. But before that, let me just say something real quick. Paul talks about this in the, in the book of Romans, a letter to the church in Rome. And he does a great job outlining everything from chapter 8 and chapter 9. But let me just give you a glimpse of what he says in chapter 9. Because predestination and election is literally the first step to something that we know as salvation. Salvation, contrary to what most Christians believe, is not a one-time thing. Salvation is not something that I was saved and now I'm not saved. It's actually a process. It's actually something that happened in the past. We just saw that happen before the foundation of the world. Happens in a specific moment in the present. That's when you respond to Jesus. And continues to happen until it ends or until it's fulfilled and that you are glorified at the end of time. So salvation, biblically, is not a one-time event. It's not based on you making a profession, or it's not based on, on you going to the front and uh, repeating a prayer. It is a process. And the first step of that process is election. And Romans 8, 29 and 30 says that, for those, who were, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the first one, that, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is the, the, the basic idea of what theologians know as the chain of salvation. So God chooses you, and at a specific time, he calls you. When he calls you, you respond in faith. And when he calls you and you respond in faith, then he justifies you. He regenerates you through the Holy Spirit. He seals you with the Holy Spirit. And then the process of sanctification begins all the way until you are glorified with him in heaven. And that is what Paul is saying. The first step is taken by God. He is the one who takes initiative. He predestines us. And he saves us in the past, in the present, and in the future. Other texts about predestination or election are, that, are, that are famous are John 15, 16. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he clearly says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. This is very clear. This is Jesus. This is not Paul. This is Jesus telling his disciples. Acts 2, verse 23, he says, Paul, uh, Peter is, is getting up in, after Pentecost and addressing the crowd. And pa Peter is saying, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what Peter is telling these Jews after Pentecost is that God predestined Jesus to die on the cross. This was the definite plan foreknown by God. 
And then Peter again in Acts 4, 27 and 28 says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So this is not a new idea. This is not a new concept. This is not something that is vague in Scripture. It's pretty clear that there is somebody who's in charge. It depends on how you interpret this. And I understand that even with all of this, this doctrine might be problematic to some. And I'm not trying to convince you. I'm trying to state what the book of the, uh, the first chapter of Ephesians says. And I can tell you, I struggled for about a year and a half to understand this. I challenged and fought my wife on all of these things. And I debated with people. And I had all the same problems that everybody had. And I thought this was immoral on God's part, that this was not fair, that how could a God whose love... I had all the, the same, and you are allowed, and it's okay for you to have those questions. But I believe that the Bible provides the answers for us. And in fact, one of the best answers and the one that literally just shut my mouth was Romans 9. Because Paul is actually talking about this. And Paul, in fact, begins chapter 9 of Romans saying that he feels bad because he understands that not all the Jews, even though this is the people of God, he says not all who are Jews by, by, by birth are going to be the people of God. And then he goes on to argue or kind of do a monologue to answer this question. And utilizing the, the example of Jacob and Esau, he says the following in Romans 9. He says, though they were not yet born, referring to Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing, either good or bad, Look at what he says. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, this is their mom, the older will serve the younger. And it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then Paul responds, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul is saying, it doesn't depend on whether you choose him. It depends on the fact that God is the one who has mercy on us and chooses us. Verse 17 says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power, my power, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And then Paul says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? Why is it that he still blames people for their sin? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump or vessel, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? I could spend hours talking about this. This is something that I am passionate about. But I believe that even with all of that, it's not my job to convince you. I still believe that people raise objections to this, and there's many attempts to find a way around this. This seems to be determinism, meaning that we have zero free will. But the Bible does not teach that. And there's a third option that's called Molinism that I'm not even going to get into because it's so complicated. But every Christian has attempted to sort of reconcile God's sovereignty in election and his power and human free will or freedom and responsibility. And the, the crazy thing is that the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches us that we need to work out our salvation with fear and tremble, but that he is the one who gives us the desire to do it and will do it with us. And we'll talk a little bit about this more, but the idea is just because it doesn't make sense in our mind, it doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense. We are not the authors of what sense means. In fact, this whole thing, You and I, what we're going through, what we're breathing, the light, everything was God's idea. He knows how things work. We're still starting to figure it out. We haven't even solved our own human little problems. How are we going to understand what God is all about, who he is, how he operates, his desires, his purposes? And that's why we have so much of a problem with topics like the Trinity. It doesn't make sense. How come there's three different gods or three different persons, but it's only one, one God, but they're not three different gods? Like, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a round square. And we're like, what? And God says, yeah. And we're like, no, because we just don't have the framework to understand what he's saying. And this is something that touches, and this is a, and I love this, but this is a very complex thing. And, and when, when we hear in the scripture that God is holy, it doesn't mean that he's just dressed in white and pure. That, that's just a very easy way to understand it. But when, when we hear that God is holy, and most of the times we hear that God is holy, even angels sing that, or, or we hear it in worship or in Psalms or in other places in Revelation, he usually is triple, like three times holy. And what that means is that he's separated. Holy means separate. So what what the Bible is trying to tell us is God is at another level. We don't have a framework to understand God. And when we come to these things and try to insert our tiny little brains and wrap wrap our heads around it, it's difficult. And this is the basis of what Paul calls our faith is foolish. Because it doesn't make sense that one carpenter from this tiny little town in the Middle East died for all of us and now everybody can be saved. That doesn't make sense. Of course not. 
It doesn't make sense that God chooses people based on his own will and love. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that Jesus Christ, being the most powerful man on earth, was born poor. That all of those things don't make sense for us because they don't have to because we can't understand God. But what we can come up with today is trusting God. We can trust God. I believe that this comes and this goes based on the level of trust that we have on Jesus. And let me just say something. I am not advocating for a blind, ignorant faith. I don't believe that Christianity is a blind faith that has no substance to it. I don't believe that. In fact, I want to encourage you to dive in even more. In fact, I want to tell you, if you have a book about systematic theology, buy it. Or if you don't have one, buy it. If you do have one, read it. If you, if you want to get into apologetics, which is the, the, the defense of our faith, go ahead and do it. Because it makes sense in some areas. But there comes a limit to where our brain cannot, cannot longer fathom what God is doing. And I believe that, for instance, David, who wrote uh, uh, many of the Psalms, without all the technology that we have, he came to those conclusions. I want to read to you Psalm 139, one of the best arguments for predestination in the Old Testament. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6 says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my, and my lying down and uh, my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Listen to this. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And then David says, such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And then later down that, in that same uh, psalm, he continues to say, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. <laughs> Listen to this. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And then he says again, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them. David is not saying, how is this? It doesn't make sense. I was making my calculations and it just, no. He just said, this is just too much. I can't even, this is precious. This is, your thoughts are so vast. I can't even wrap my head around them. And there's something else, and I want to end with this, that the Apostle Paul makes sure that we understand. And, the, the re, and it's the reason why God chooses us or predestines us or elects us, and it's because of his will and purpose. And this is mentioned four times in this text. The first time is 
talking about Paul, which we'll talk about that. Paul is actually one of the first examples of how God chooses and intervenes in people's lives. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Verse 5 says that we were chosen according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9 says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 11 says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything that God does is according to his purposes, according to his will. It's because he has a plan it's because he knows it's because it's not it's not because it's random it is all planned and we are always going to struggle in understanding what is it that god is doing and why is it that god doesn't do some of the things we want we will never understand why he chooses to heal some and some of them no not we will never understand why some people die and why others are not dying. We will never understand these things because we just don't have in, enough information to understand it. And even if we had enough information, I don't think we could find a way to make sense out of it. And I've talked to my kids about this. And kids usually at, 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 at an early age are, understand it easily. But when they start turning close to 10, they start asking questions, right? So I have to tell my kids, try to give them a, a good answer. But at the end of the day, this is where I come back to. I'm like, we are like little ants trying to understand the internet. And these are things that they can relate to. <laughs> I'm like, how do you tell that little thing that you can barely see that there's a movie playing in your screen that comes out of nowhere? or that machine over there in that room. They, they just can't. And that comparison between an ant and the inter internet is small compared to the difference between you and God. We are not even close to being ants. We're even smaller to God. And in fact, uh, David he says, I can't even understand why you remember us. We're so small. God is working. He has a plan. He has a purpose that we cannot understand because we just can't. And, and, and there's, just because we don't understand it or it doesn't make sense in our brain, it doesn't mean it's not true. And I love, there's a, there's a really good book that I want to encourage you to read. It's a very small book. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's by Donald Carson. And he comes up with something that I think it's a great excuse. And he says, he, he, he coined the term for theology, uh, compatibilism. And the idea behind this is that just because we think it's incompatible, it doesn't mean it is incompatible. Just because we can't make sense of it, it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. He says God is sovereign and powerful, and we are free, and we are responsible, and both of them are compatible. How? We don't know. But they're compatible because the Bible teaches that they're compatible. I want to end by saying that the best thing that could happen to all of us, and we'll delve this in, in, the, next, in the next sermon uh, more, 
is the best thing that could happen to us is that God acts, acts based on his will. The best thing that can happen to us is that he is not influenced by our actions and that he is not influenced by other people, uh, people's opinions. He is not influenced because of climate change. He is not freaking out because a party is in control or because there is a war. or He's not influenced by any of those things. He, he has a plan. And he acts with love, completely calm, complete, completely collected. He has a purpose. And he chooses us based on that. And in fact, if you notice, in verse 9, Paul uses the word mystery of his will to refer to everything that's happening. And that mystery is Jesus himself. As we read with Peter, Jesus was predestined to die on the cross before the foundation of the earth. In fact, Revelation repeats that, that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And Colossians, Paul says it, this mystery hidden up for ages is Jesus in us. And I just want to end by saying that this doctrine of predestination, when it comes to us and to Jesus, should bring us joy and peace because before the foundation of the earth, God chose Jesus to die for you and I and to save us. Jesus it was not a plan B. If you are thinking that God created everything and this beautiful earth and then these two people messed up his plan, you are wrong. There was no plan B. Jesus was appointed from the beginning to die on the cross for you and I and show, display, lavish his grace and mercy upon us on the cross. And that was his decree. That was his plan. That is his will. That is his purpose, to save us, to love us, based on him, not on us. This infinite, amazing, omniscient God knows everything about you knows the worst thing you've done and the best thing you've done, knows every little sin to the biggest of your sins, and still he has chosen you. And he made his son come and die for you. Why? Because even though our sins are many, what is it? His mercy is more. And that is something that should give us peace. And if you're not a believer and you're listening to this right now, I want to tell you, God has appointed for you to hear this. And it is not a coincidence that you're listening to this. And the invitation stands until the day you die. Come to me, and you'll be saved. Lord Jesus, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your choosing us. Thank you for predestining in us. Thank you for everything that you've done for us. Lord, I pray that your word will bring us hope and comfort and joy and peace. In a changing, volatile society and world, we find refuge in a steadfast, all-knowing, all-powerful God who has chosen to love us. 
Thank you, God, for that.